All right, well, we uh, have been studying through the Gospel of Luke, so if you haven't already, uh, please take your Bible and open up or reopen your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we want to, again, uh, this week, uh, talk about Jesus. The theme of this message is Jesus, which shouldn't really be a surprise because uh, Luke is all about Jesus. He uh, is writing for a reason, Luke. He's not just writing some stories uh, that he thinks we might find interesting. Uh, Instead, he's making some claims about Jesus. You might say uh, Luke is advancing a thesis. In other words, uh, he has something he wants to prove. Specifically, he wants to prove that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, God makes a promise. And the New Testament and Luke says, Jesus is the way God keeps that promise which is exciting if you know the promise and maybe not so exciting if you don't. And that is why Luke helps us in the first couple chapters by giving us almost a rundown of some of the highlights. Going back to chapter 1, he says Jesus is going to be great, Luke chapter 1, verse 32, and he's going to be called the Son of the Most High, and he's going to be given a throne, and a specific throne too, the throne of David. And in the Old Testament, that's code, or, or not really code, but it's a short way of, of saying that Jesus is going to be the way God solves all the problems of the world. And Luke tells us that he's going to rule over Israel, and he's going to have an everlasting kingdom, which is not something that we've seen before, one king ruling forever. And that is good news, because this king is going to provide a complete and total salvation for his people, economic salvation, a social kind of salvation, governmental, spiritual. And he can do that because of who he is. He's the Lord, Luke says. And that is actually a word for for Yahweh, which is mind-blowing. This is a divine Messiah. And Luke keeps going. He's the horn of salvation. He's the fulfillment of something called the Abrahamic covenant, which means he's God's answer to the problem of the fall. He's the glory of God, and he's going to bring peace on earth for those with whom God is well pleased. He's God's salvation. He's the hope for those who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. He is the one who is going to baptize God's people with his spirit, which again is another Old Testament promise, which kickstarts the day of the Lord, basically, which is this day when God visibly steps into what's happening in the universe and saves his people and judges the wicked. And you know, that's just the first couple chapters of Luke. Luke is making big claims about Jesus, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Luke is claiming Jesus is the one who changes history forever. There is no one like Jesus. What happened with Jesus changes history forever. Now, the question, of course, is how does he do that? And... How do we know he can do that? It is great to make claims. It's one thing to make claims, but you want an explanation. You want some proof. How does he do that? How do we know he can do that? Those are two key questions to keep in mind as we read these stories in Luke, because those are the questions he is constantly trying to answer. And we get a a clue, kind of a big clue, toward the beginning at Jesus' baptism. You remember when God rips open the sky and says, You are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And so at the start of Jesus' ministry, after we've been told what to expect in chapters 1 and 2, in chapter 3, at the start of Jesus' ministry, God speaks. It's like he takes the microphone and introduces Jesus. And what he says is a confirmation. When God shows up and says, this is my son, that's like a big old exclamation point. It's a confirmation, and it's also an explanation of how Jesus is going to accomplish all these things that Luke's been claiming. You might say it gives us a paradigm, or it gives us a grid for thinking about Jesus and what he's going to do. He's the son of God, which here in this passage is fitting him back into the Old Testament story. And Luke shows where in the genealogy he gives next in chapter 3, where he makes a connection very specifically and very deliberately between Jesus and Adam. Luke chapter 3, verse 38. Jesus is coming into this world 
to change the world by being a second Adam. Since man broke the world, God is going to use a man to fix it. How? That's what we're claiming, and that's how Jesus is being introduced. That's part of what we mean when we say he's the son of God. But how? How is he going to do that? And that's an important question for us to think about because we have some preconceptions how God is supposed to work already. We have our own ideas how Jesus should accomplish salvation, how he should fix things. Before we even open up Luke, I think, which is where a lot of our doubts come in, actually, and uncertainty. It's not that God is not working through Jesus. It's that we don't agree with how God's working through Jesus. It doesn't look like we would expect. It's like we're backseat drivers when it comes to God's plan for saving the universe. We think we know the direction God is supposed to go, how it's supposed to work, what it's supposed to look like. Which is why the next thing Luke does is tell us about the temptation of Jesus, chapter 4. Because one thing the temptation makes clear is that there are two different ways of thinking about what it means to be the Son of God. It's, it's like there are two different ideas how the Son of God should accomplish salvation. And one of them is the devil's. You remember how Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and what the devil does is offer up a version of sonship to Jesus. If you are the son of God, since you are the son of God, he says, this is how it should work. That's the test. That's the temptation. Whose plan is Jesus going to follow? And Jesus rejects the devil's plan. Jesus says, that is not the kind of son I am. That's not how this is going to work. And so we can look at the temptation and say, this is not what we should expect from Jesus. This is not how he's going to accomplish salvation. Or I guess, on the other hand, we can look at the temptation and see, this is what we should expect from Jesus. This is how he's going to do it. And if you want to summarize real quickly how he's going to do it, he is going to accomplish salvation by trusting his father's plan and submitting to his father's plan no matter what. There are no shortcuts for Jesus. There is no deviation. He is going to do exactly what his father wants him to do. Which is what? That's, that's the next question. As we look at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that's the next question Luke wants us to be asking. How is Jesus going to do this exactly if he's not going to do it the devil's way? Which is where Luke chapter 4 verse 14 comes in. It's kind of like Luke brings in Jesus preaching to answer that question, and he brings up a very specific example of one of Jesus' sermons. To understand how Jesus is going to change the world, you have to listen to Jesus. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 16 and following, Luke picks a very specific sermon, and he's making a deliberate choice here, for sure, in terms of the sermon, because Jesus preached a lot of sermons, but Luke chooses one. He brings up a specific example of one of Jesus' sermons, and it's not the first sermon Jesus preached either. It's later on. But he brings up this sermon because it's such a good explanation of Jesus' program, I guess you could say. It's a preview. How exactly is Jesus going to change history? Luke says, listen. You have to listen. As Jesus picks a passage from Isaiah about someone called the servant of the Lord as an explanation. And you know, Luke doesn't give us Jesus's whole sermon, I don't think. He just quotes the passage in verses 18 and 19, and then he gives us the essence of what Jesus says about it in verse 21. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Which at first, maybe you don't think tells you more than you already knew, actually. Because it seems like Jesus is saying he's going to provide salvation and turn everything upside down because he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And you're like, I thought I already knew that. And you did already know that, but there's more that's a little harder to catch because we're not as immersed in the Old Testament story as we should be. And I was trying to think of an illustration, but I, I can't really think of a better one to show the problem than it would be like 
maybe going to a Star Wars convention as a person who's watched Star Wars maybe one time with someone who's watched Star Wars a thousand times. He's going to understand so much more, more quickly than I ever would or would want to, honestly. But it's going to make much more sense to him. And so all it's going to take is like someone quoting one line from one of the movies. And I'm going to think it's like a random weird statement. What are they talking about? But he's going to be like laughing or cheering. Even someone wearing a certain outfit or like hairstyle. He's over there giggling and I'm like, what is going on? You can imagine. There's just so many nuances that he's going to get more quickly than I am. Like how it would be for us if we were sitting there with these Jewish people in Nazareth that day as Jesus is quoting this passage from Isaiah. And, you know, I think Luke tries to help us feel that, actually, that we're missing something as we read this so that we go back and do the work by the way he writes the story because he writes it so quickly. You read Luke chapter 4, verse 16 and following, you remember from last week, and all there is is Jesus reading this passage and saying this scripture has been fulfilled. And then verse 22, it's like all of a sudden everybody's looking at each other with their mouths open and they start asking questions and you're supposed to be like, wait, did I miss something? I better look more carefully because their reaction is so different, so volatile. I think maybe I missed something. And you look back and you see, one, this quote that Jesus is bringing up here is part of a whole string of interconnected passages in Isaiah that describe a whole story, essentially. And we know, of course, a big part of that story is Isaiah chapter 53 with the servant suffering and dying, which is a clue. And then two, you look at the specific text Jesus quotes, and you realize, wow, he left a huge part out. He stopped mid-verse, which would have been a surprise. It would almost be like me quoting John 3.16 and just saying, for God so loved the world, and then stopping and sitting down. You would be like, uh, wait, I'm pretty sure there's more here that you need to read. And they would have been like that double-double because the part Jesus left out was the judgment of the Gentiles, which was everybody's favorite part. And of course, that doesn't mean Jesus is not going to judge the Gentiles, but it does mean we need some more explanation, and we're going to get that as we read the rest of the Gospel of Luke. But the point is, we're looking at Luke as we pick up this book, and Luke is trying to prove something about Jesus. He's trying to prove that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament which means that what happened with Jesus changes history forever, and he tells us how he's going to do it. Not the way that we would expect, but by submitting to the Father's will. And then he shows us Jesus quoting a passage that gives a glimpse of the Father's will for him. And so this is the program. Jesus is going to provide this world-changing salvation the way Isaiah described when he talked about the servant of God. And then Luke shows us how the people of Israel respond. They want to kill Jesus. Which is where some of our questions might come in, I think. We get a preview of how Israel is going to respond in this first sermon Luke records. That's why he chooses this one. They say, is not this Joseph's son? Verse 22. Which is a loaded statement. That's the thing. Because you remember... God looks at Jesus at his baptism and says what? He says, you are my beloved son. And we know what that means. He's going to be a second Adam. He's going to fix all the problems in the universe, not by following Satan's plan, but God's that he laid out in Isaiah. And then as Jesus is explaining what that means, it's like Israel looks at Jesus and says, wait, is not this Joseph's son? And that's not just an innocent question. <laughs> At all, that's, that's the point. No, this is them rejecting Jesus. You're making all these claims. You can't do this. I mean, who do you think you are? You're not the son of God. You are just Joseph's son. Which gets us asking some questions already this early in Luke, if we're following along. Like, is Jesus just Joseph's son? He's rejected by the Jews. What does the rejection of the Jews, by uh, the rejection of Jesus by the Jews, say about Jesus and what God's doing through him, because it seems like a pretty big obstacle, you know? Here is Luke saying, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Good news, good news, good news. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. 
And he's making clear that he knows what that means. You may not know what that means, but, but Luke knows what that means. He knows it has something to do with Israel. And he repeatedly stresses that in the first couple chapters, if you remember. Luke 1.33, what does the angel say? He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And who is the house of Jacob? That's not really complicated. That's not you. That's, 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 uh, who would Mary have thought when she heard house of Jacob? She would have thought Israel. Or, or, or Luke 1.68, Zechariah says, Blessed be the God of Israel, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And who is Zechariah thinking about? Look, that's not complicated either. He's thinking about Israel, which is the question, right? That's the question because Luke is making big claims about Jesus and we make big claims about Jesus and we don't make those claims up. We get them from the Old Testament. But we open up the gospel and the people, most of the Old Testament is about Israel, for the most part, rejected Jesus. So how are we supposed to understand that? Does that say something about Jesus? Because the people of Nazareth would have said that it did. They would have said to Jesus, you need to give us more proof. You are too ordinary. We need more signs which I think is still an objection today. It's, it's an easy way to write Jesus off. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, but he was rejected because he didn't meet the qualifications. He's just another ordinary Jew. But Luke wants you to doubt your doubts a little. If there's one thing I've learned about doubt over the years, it's that you have to doubt your doubts a little because doubt always comes in acting so confident. Like the answers are easy, but it's a little like the Wizard of Oz, really. It's got all this noise and show to seem so powerful, but you pull back the curtain and it's just a little guy behind the screen. And one way Luke makes clear this objection isn't as powerful as the people were making it sound is Jesus's response. Because you read Luke 4, 16 to 30, and clearly Jesus is not phased at all. Because he reminds them they had signs, actually. They heard what he did in Capernaum. And then he points out that there's something bigger going on here in verse 24. He says, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And so he's saying this actually, what's happening here in this moment is part of a, a larger pattern. And it's really of prophets being rejected by Israel. And that's going to be a theme in Luke, Israel rejecting the prophets. In fact, later in Luke 13, Jesus describes Jerusalem as the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And then in Acts, you remember when, Acts, when Stephen preaches his sermon, Acts 7.52, he's about to get stoned, and he asks, which of, your fathers, which of you, the prophets, did your fathers not persecute? And so it's like really Jesus being rejected by Israel is more of a sign that he is who he says he is than it is that he isn't. And Jesus confirms that in Luke 4.25 and following. He says, if you look back to the Old Testament, there are other examples of prophets being rejected by Israel. And you know what? That didn't stop them from being prophets. And it, it didn't stop God from doing what he was doing through them either. I mean, just take two of their most famous prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And two really famous stories about a widow in Sidon and, and Naaman the Syrian who were Gentiles, actually. And I don't know if Jesus is giving Israel a warning by bringing up these examples. I know he is going to later. But even if he's not yet, he's certainly giving those of us who are not Israel hope because he's using Gentiles as an example. Gentiles with faith, being saved, being rescued, being delivered. Which may not surprise us because we're so used to Gentiles being saved nowadays. But if we've been reading Luke and paying attention, it should surprise us a little. This is one of our biggest problems reading the Bible is we're not surprised the way we should be. It should surprise us a little. Luke's tried to help us be surprised if we're paying attention because this salvation that Luke's describing is very Israel-centered so far, which is why one of the big questions people were asking as they looked at what happened to Jesus in the early church was, what is going on with all these Gentiles? I mean, we need an explanation, which again is part of why Luke's writing. He's making big claims about Jesus, and he knows, he totally knows, that when you look at what actually happened with Jesus— there are some things that seem surprising, like the fact that Israel rejected him and the fact that so many Gentiles are saved. 
And Luke 4 isn't the whole answer, but Jesus is opening the door at the beginning of his ministry when he says, if you look at what happened, even in the Old Testament, you will see there are examples when Israel wouldn't believe the prophets, but there were Gentiles who would and who received the blessing instead, which is good news for us, but a super controversial claim for Jesus. I mean, just Jesus, just he just took all these claims Luke was making about him to another level. And we know that this was super controversial because of how the people of Israel responded. They became very upset, and we see how upset they get in verse 29. They rose up after Jesus said this, and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Which kind of brings us back to the whole reason Luke's writing. Again, if Israel's rejection of Jesus isn't just a hard stop, if it isn't the end of the argument like someone might have thought, if the Jews rejecting Jesus didn't mean he wasn't the fulfillment of the Old Testament, we need an explanation how. Are you following? I know we're doing a lot of work, but I really want you to hear the Bible, not me, on Sundays. <laughs> and it's hard for us to hear the Bible because we're not, we're just so far removed. Our cultures are, we don't, we're not immersed in the scriptures. So that's why we're doing all this work, because I want you to hear this passage as it, as it is. Because my little three-point outline is not nearly as exciting as understanding Luke's argument. <laughs> How is Jesus going to accomplish salvation? How is he going to accomplish this good news for the poor, this liberty for the captives, this sight for the blind, this liberty for the oppressed, and this year of the Lord's favor? And how do we know he's able to do that? And now we're finally at verses 31 and following. Is that the world's longest introduction? Maybe. But I want you, I, I so want you to see how this fits into the argument. Because in verses 31 and following, Luke's like, okay, now you're ready. If you're asking those questions, you're actually ready to understand this passage. If you're not asking these questions, this passage means it's not going to be helpful for you. You have to be asking those questions to understand this passage. And if you're asking those questions, Luke's like, okay, now you're ready. Come with me to Capernaum. I want to show you something. And Capernaum, apparently, was a pretty big town, to give you a little background. Luke calls it a city, and it was located on the Sea of Galilee, and it became the headquarters for much of Jesus' ministry. After his rejection in Nazareth, seems like he sort of adopted Capernaum as his home city. Matthew 9 calls it Jesus' own city. And as we try to put Jesus' story together, where he was, when he did what, we see from John that after his time in Judea, that's where he went right after he was baptized. He went down to Judea. After that, he came back to Capernaum, even before he went to Nazareth. He was baptized, he went to Judea, he came back to Capernaum. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was, was sick, and he asked Jesus to heal him. And Jesus healed his son, and this is probably what the people in Nazareth were thinking about when Jesus said they wanted him to do what he did in Capernaum. That might have been the sign they were thinking of. But Jesus obviously didn't do what he did there when he went to Nazareth. And so the people of Nazareth tried to throw him off a cliff. And we see in verse 31 that Jesus left Nazareth, maybe for good, and went back down to Capernaum, Luke says. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And you might want to underline possessed authority, or at least... Uh, Put it in bold print in your minds, because that is the key point that Luke wants to make about Jesus right now. And we know that's the key point because he opens the story this way, and if you look down to verse 36, he closes it the same way as well. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And so it's like we open this passage, and we're asking, how can we know that Jesus can fulfill the program he just laid out because the program is big, like we keep saying, because we're talking about Jesus providing a complete and total salvation. And how can we know that, especially when he doesn't do it the way we think he would? And then on top of that, how can we be sure he can do it? How can we be sure he's not just Joseph's son when he's rejected by his own people like that? 
And the first answer Luke gives is to show us the way the demons responded to him. Listen, Luke wants you to be sure that Jesus can do everything he's claiming he can do. And so he's going to put his power and his authority on display. And the way he puts his power and authority on display is by showing the way the demons responded to him. Verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Which maybe doesn't give us as much assurance as it should at first, because we don't take demons very seriously. In fact, it's, it's really challenging preaching a sermon like this here, in contrast to preaching it in Africa. Because in Africa, I wouldn't really need to say much about the reality of demons. That was taken for granted. Obviously, there are demons, and they're real. But here, I definitely do. The problems in this world go so much deeper than we sometimes think they do. I remember talking to Africans sometimes, and they would be like, oh, Josh, you're an American. Of course you don't believe in demons. I can't explain this to you. You'll never, under you'll never understand what I've seen. And I'd have to be like, you know what? If I don't believe in demons, I'm wrong, because the Bible believes in demons. When God explains what's happening in this world from the beginning, he makes clear that there are spiritual beings who we can't see, who are evil, and who are opposed to him and opposed to us, and who do have some level of interaction with what's happening in this world. This world is a kind of battleground, you might say, not just between natural evil and natural good, but between supernatural evil and supernatural good. And we've already seen that in the Gospel of Luke. I mean, first, Jesus is the Son of God. Second, one thing that means is he's going to be like a second Adam. And then third, Luke's like, you know what? He goes to battle against the devil at the beginning of chapter 4. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see there is an opposing force, the devil. And Actually, whether the devil's telling the truth or not, we see that also that the devil is claiming authority over Jesus. I mean, that's one of his temptations, right? Luke 4, verse 6, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me. And so like, it's like this is a massive obstacle to Jesus providing this salvation that Luke's described. If Jesus is going to change history forever the way the Bible says he's going to do, he has to overcome the devil. It's like the devil saying in the temptation, to get the kingdom, you're going to have to come through me. And we need to know, is Jesus able to do that? And how can we know for sure that he has the power to do that? And I think we need to feel the weight of those questions. I know it's hard for some of us, partly because we're a little naive, honestly, about the amount of evil in this world. We believe a lot of things that people tell us to believe in, but for some reason, not supernatural evil. But when the Bible talks about demons and the devil, it makes clear that there are fearsome, supernatural beings who have some power and authority in this world right now. In fact, in, in John chapter 12, verse 31, and chapter 14, verse 30, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. In another passage, he calls him the god of this world. John tells us in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. When Paul preaches in Acts 26, he says that the purpose of his preaching is to open people's eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, we see Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. Satan blinds people spiritually so they can't see the beauty of Christ. Hebrews tells us that he had the power of death, and he uses that fear of death to hold people in lifelong slavery to him. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we're in a war, that the devil has schemes and strategies, that he plans to do us harm spiritually. And so he makes it clear that this world is a very real battleground with very real battles taking place against very real cosmic powers, against spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly places. And I, and I know, of course, we don't meet people here very often who are afraid of demons. But when we lived in Africa, we would meet people all the time who were afraid. Very afraid. And you know what? If I'm talking to an unbeliever, I can understand that fear better than not being afraid. Because there are supernatural beings who are opposed to people out there and who do all sorts of damage. And we see one of the most extreme ways here in Luke with this story about a man who was possessed with a spirit. Or I guess literally verse 33, it says he had the spirit of an unclean demon. In other words, he was demon-possessed, which is, which is probably the most common way people think of demons and what they're doing in the world. If we talk about demons at all, we might talk about demon possession. But you know, as you look at the scripture, demon possession is actually kind of an unusual thing. We don't find demon possession anywhere in the Old Testament. There's maybe oppression, and there's no... Uh, talk of it in the epistles either, not maybe oppression, there is oppression, but there's no real talk of demonic possession as we see in the gospels, and there's no talk of it in the epistles, but it seems like there was an explosion of demonic activity like this that we're reading about here in Luke 4 surrounding the ministry of Jesus. But of course, we know that's not the only way the devil influences people in this world. In fact, the Bible says that if you're an unbeliever, you are following, whether you know it or not, the prince of the power of the air. And then it goes on to say, Ephesians chapter 2, that this prince of the power of the air is at work in the sons of disobedience. And so every unbeliever, according to the Bible, is influenced by Satan and these evil spiritual forces to a certain extent. Which means the reality is there's a sense in which, in terms of the people sitting there in Capernaum that day, every one of them, there, who was an unbeliever, was in a desperate position because they were all in bondage to Satan, and many of them didn't even know it. But, and this is important, they weren't all in bondage the same way. Satan enslaves people in different ways, and really most of the time it's indirect, and it's behind the scenes, and people don't even know that it's Satan at work. But, and this is the difference with demonic possession, with demonic possession you absolutely know it. It is clear. Everyone knows, which is maybe why you don't see as much demon possession today, because why, why would he need to show himself? I don't think it, further, it furthers his strategy, Satan. He likes staying behind the scenes if it works better. And really, that's the way he worked for most of the Bible anyway. But perhaps with Jesus coming to earth and the devil and the demonic forces understanding why he was coming to earth, I don't know, but it, but it seems to me maybe they just went into an all-out assault mode. Because in, in the Gospels, we meet many people who were demon-possessed. And perhaps partially, we see more of it there. And I don't have a, a chapter and verse for this, so take it for what it's worth. But it may be that God removed his restraining hand for a time, and he allowed more of this obvious demonic oppression to take place as a way of clearly demonstrating Jesus' power over the demonic realm. Because, you know, with a lot of the demonic activity we read about in the Bible, it's more behind the scenes. It's, it's hard to put your finger on the devil's exact role. He's got a role, but it's harder to identify. But with demon possession, it's different. This is an obvious, in-your-face, can't-be-dismissed demonstration of the way demons hate people and oppress people and abuse people. And because it's so in-your-face and because it's so impossible for people to overcome on their own, it sets up a great opportunity to see whether or not Jesus did have the power and authority to deliver people from Satan's kingdom. Because we know if Jesus is going to provide salvation, he has to defeat the devil. Can he defeat the devil? Is this just Joseph's son? And let me show you one reason why this is kind of a pressing question here in Luke. If you go back to the temptation, you remember the third temptation where Jesus was taken by Satan to the pinnacle of the temple? And what did he say? This Luke's so cool. <laughs> the Bible's so cool. He said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then he quotes what passage of the Bible? If you try to read the Bible and you don't want to think, it's a very, it's a very hard book. But if you want to think, the Bible is amazing. He reads a passage. What passage does he read? Oh, you're so used to me telling the answer. But it's Psalm 91. 
He reads Psalm 91 as proof that he should do that. And he picks that psalm for a reason. And one of the reasons why he picks that particular psalm, and I haven't told you this before, so this isn't a second. This isn't a repeat. He, one of the reasons he picks that psalm is because in Jesus' day, follow me now, that psalm was a psalm people used to show that the son of David, the Messiah, would have power over demons. And I'm not going to go into all the proof of that now, but there's a lot. And so as one scholar explains, what is happening is that Satan knows the content of that psalm. He knows how people think about that psalm. And so it's like Satan is saying, if you really are the Messiah, you should be able to jump off here right now and get rescued by the angels, and then we'll know the fact that, that you really are superior to the demons, to the guys who work for me, and even me, myself. So let's see that. And of course, Jesus doesn't do that. And if you think about the flow of the temptations in Luke, it starts to make even more sense because it's like in the temptation before, the devil says he has the authority to give the kingdom to Jesus, which is what the Son of God's supposed to have, the kingdom. And then Jesus says, no, I'm not going to receive the kingdom that way. And then it's like the devil comes back in the next temptation and is saying, who do you think you are? <laughs> do, do you think you're Psalm 91? You, you really think you have that kind of authority? Prove that you have this kind of special relationship with God. And of course, Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't listen to Satan, which is good news, but means we've still got this question, right? As we're reading Luke, how do we know Jesus really does have the power and authority to overcome Satan? And that question becomes more pressing when we look at the next story and see his own people rejecting him. Isn't this Joseph's son? Aren't these claims we're making about Jesus a little too extraordinary for someone who looks so ordinary? But then what does Luke do? It's, it's so cool because first thing he does is he shows us that God did actually supernaturally protect Jesus when his own people wanted to kill him, which is a fulfillment, you could say, of Psalm 91. And then the next thing he does is show us Jesus going to battle with a demon. And battle might be too strong a word, actually, because it's not a problem for Jesus. But at first you read this story and it would have felt like one to us. I mean, Maybe just try to imagine being at the synagogue that day. I remember someone saying, you got to read, when you read the Bible, it's like you got to feel the sand beneath your toes, you know? You, you got to put yourself there to really get what the, is happening in the passage. And imagine trying to be at the synagogue, imagine being at the synagogue that day when Jesus stands up to preach. And, and, and this man with an unclean spirit cries out in the middle of his sermon. And you can see back in verse 31, it says, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And in verse 33, it says, as he's teaching. It's right then, as he's teaching, that the man in the synagogue cries out with a loud voice, which for many of us would be a frightening situation if that happened right now. Like if somebody says something, sometimes we're like, whoa. But if somebody cries out with a loud voice, most of us would be frightened, I think. Because people who are demon-possessed seem so out of control. And obviously, here, crying out, shouting in the middle of a sermon is not normal. But what I want you to notice as we look at this passage is who really is the one who's frightened? Because it's not Jesus. It's the demon. Luke wants you to be sure that Jesus can do everything he's claiming he can do. And so he puts Jesus' power over demons on display, and he does so in two ways. And the first is the way the demon responds to Jesus. It's the first time we encounter a demon in the Gospel of Luke, and it's clear he's scared. That's why he cries out with a loud voice, Ha! Which basically just means to shout or scream. And it sounds in English like he's challenging Jesus, but if it's a challenge, it's a desperate one. It's, it's more like a word that just comes out when you're experience, experiencing an intense emotion, like fear or anger. Ha! Ha! And so here Jesus is preaching, and everyone's astonished at his teaching, and, and they're stunned by what they're hearing. There was, there's something startling about the way Jesus preached, and, and Luke tells us his word possessed authority. And so this is different than they're used to, because Jesus is proclaiming, he's commanding, he's speaking as one whose very word must be obeyed immediately at that moment. And that unique authority was obvious to everyone, even the demons. And so 
as Jesus preaches the word there in Capernaum, it astonishes the people and it causes this demon to cry out, ha, it's like he can't control himself. The word of God being delivered with such power, it causes this demon to scream. He can't just let Jesus continue. He has to find a way to make him stop. And so he cries out, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And I love that, Jesus of Nazareth, because it's ironic. The fact that he calls him Jesus of Nazareth because it makes the connection with the previous story where the people rejected him because they were like, you are too ordinary. But that wasn't an obstacle for this demon. This demon recognized who Jesus was and what Jesus had come to do, which is the second reason he responded the way he did. He was frightened first by the way Jesus was preaching and he was frightened second by Jesus's purpose. Have you come to destroy us? And what's the answer to that question? Come on, hallelujah. Yes, yes, that's the point. This is part of the reason God sent Jesus into the world. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2, 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And you know what? That destruction is not only in theory, because God has a plan. There's going to be a time when God sends an angel to seize the devil and bind him for a thousand years. And after that, he's going to be released for a little while and do some damage again. But in the end, Revelation 20.10, the devil is going to be thrown into a lake of fire and sulfur where he's going to be tormented day and night forever, which is going to be the fulfillment of a promise God made way back in the beginning of the world. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned and the devil thought he won. God made a promise. This is Genesis 3.15, right at the beginning of the Bible. God said to the serpent, representing Satan and the demonic forces, there's going to be enmity between him and the woman, between her offspring and Satan's offspring, and that God would, through the seed of the woman, crush the head of the serpent. In other words, since Adam lost to the devil, God promised he's going to send a second Adam to defeat the devil. Since the devil thought he could overturn God's plan by tempting the woman, God's going to use the seed of the woman to destroy Satan. And from that point on, it's one of the major themes of the Bible, the seed of the serpent, Satan and his demonic forces, and those under his influence waging war on the seed of the woman, those who belong to God. And they've done that because God made this promise that one day the seed of the woman would destroy them. And so the demons, to a certain extent, know this is God's plan. And I think this demon is afraid, and he's asking him, is it happening now? Have you come to destroy us? The demons know the truth, and the truth scares them. And as Jesus preaches the truth that day in Capernaum, maybe he's even preaching the same passage he preached in Nazareth, Isaiah 61. And he's talking about proclaiming good news to the poor and liberty to the captives and sight to the blind and freedom for the oppressed and the year of the Lord's favor. And as the demon sits there listening to all that, he knows the implications. He's not confused. He knows that for the captives to be set free, the ones holding people captive have to be defeated. For the spiritually blind to see, the one blinding them has got to be crushed. And for the oppressed to be set free, evil has to be eliminated. And so as Jesus is preaching, it's like he's preaching right to that demon. And the demon is frightened and angry about what Jesus preaches because it reminds him of Jesus' purpose. And perhaps most of all, because he understands what it reveals about who Jesus is. What Jesus said scared the demon. Why Jesus came scared the demon. But most of all, who Jesus was scared the demon. I know who you are. The Holy One of God. And that's, that's just awesome for a lot of reasons. One, it's referring to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. But two, you know Holy One? That phrase, Holy One? Where does that way of speaking come up most? What book of the Bible uses Holy One the most? Isaiah. 29 times in the book of Isaiah, God's actually called the Holy One of Israel. So this demon may be talking about Jesus as Messiah primarily here, but I think this demon also knew Jesus was not just another ordinary man from Nazareth, but actually the preexistent, eternal Son of God. And though it might have been somewhat confusing for demons because Jesus was veiled in human flesh and had this body and he was a true man, he is also someone, that demon, who at some point had seen 
Jesus in his glory, exalted in the heavens, which was a sight that made even holy angels cover their faces and their feet and cry out in praise and all. And so it's no surprise that it would have made a wicked demon, as he reflected on it, cry out in terror, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And yet I guess what what makes me so sad is that while the demon could see it, the people of Nazareth refused to admit it. Even though Jesus had lived with them all those years, even though Jesus had identified himself to them, when they listened, they weren't terrified. Instead, they said, isn't this Joseph's son? They acted like they were Jesus's judge, where this demon, on the other hand, was looking at the same exact person and was angry as well and screaming and yelling, but for a completely different reason. It wasn't because he thought he had more power than Jesus or the right to judge Jesus, but because he knew who Jesus was and he knew that Jesus was the judge over him. And we see here he was, he clearly was. This is not just Joseph's son. Jesus is the Son of God. You come to this church for very long. One thing I hope you hear us talking about all the time is Jesus. So we're going to talk about Jesus all the time. And you're going to hear us make some big claims about Jesus because we believe he, not us, he is the one who changes the entire history of the universe. And how's he going to do that? He's going to have to defeat the devil. He's, he has to defeat the supernatural forces of evil that cause so much problems in this world. But how do we know he can do that? To help us be sure that Jesus can do everything he's claiming he can do, Luke shows us the power of Jesus. And one way we see his power is in the demon's response to him. The second way we see his power is in Jesus' rebuke of the demon, verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And you know what? The demon did. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And you notice how Luke says the demon came out of him, having done him no harm. Because that's, that's important. It's also a little shocking because demons are not kind. They have no pity. That's one of the things that makes hell hell, actually, is... We have pity in this world. Even unbelievers have pity. You, hell is hell. Part of what makes it hell is no one has pity in hell. And the whole reason demons possess people is to oppress them. Demon possession is about oppression in the Bible. It's not so much about temptation. When a demon possesses someone in the Bible, it's not so much that we're like seeing him suddenly want to read or look at pornography. Instead, when someone is demon-possessed, In the Bible, we see that they're abused, they're tormented, they're made to act less than human, really. And so the point is that obviously what this demon would have wanted to do is damage this man he was possessing further because demons don't have pity. And yet as angry as he was and as hateful as he was and as evil as he was, when Jesus spoke, he had to obey by immediately coming out of the man and not even doing any harm to him as he did. And look, that is power. Because here you've got the most fearsome, the most frightening, the most evil, the most proud, the most slanderous, the most deceptive beings on the planet, demons. And you look at the way they treat most men. Even this man here in Luke 4, this demon has control. And yet when he's in in the presence of Jesus, this fearsome, frightening, evil, proud, slanderous, deceptive, powerful being is frightened and he's forced to bow immediately to his authority over him. Jesus speaks, the demon listens. Jesus meets this demon-possessed man. He's in a situation that seems out of control to everyone else. And yet Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, totally dominates him. And he doesn't need any fancy tricks. He doesn't need any long incantation. He dominates this demon with nothing but his word which is one reason why we should be confident that Jesus can do absolutely everything Luke says he could. And man, we need him to. We need him to. Because we look at this world and it is a mess. There's so many problems, so much sin, and the reality is the closer we look, the bigger the problems get. Because the problems are actually bigger than what we can see. 
There are demonic forces. And so we look at this world and we might wonder, can anyone fix this? We can't even fix the natural problems ourselves, much less the supernatural ones. But then we look at Jesus. Then we look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. This is what Luke wants us to do because Luke's making these big claims about Jesus. He's coming to set the captives free. He's coming to restore sight to the blind. He's coming to give liberty to the oppressed. He's coming to hit the reset button on the universe to restore everything to the way it should be. And we might hear all this and we might ask, how's he going to do that? And how can we be sure he can do that? Do you see him there in Capernaum? Look at Jesus in the synagogue. And believe, what kind of word is this? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Listen, Jesus is going to fix everything by defeating Satan forever. What's your job? What's your job? How do you respond to that? Believe. Believe. And worship. Because while the people of Nazareth may not have recognized Jesus for who he was, is not this Joseph's son? He's too common. He's too ordinary. The salvation doesn't look the way we would expect. While the people of Nazareth might not have recognized Jesus for who he was, I'll tell you what the demons did. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demons knew. Do you? To you. Let's pray. Lord, please put Jesus on display for us. I feel such passion in my heart to, to try to be able to do that, but I know I'm so unable. And so this is a spiritual war we're involved in, Lord, and I pray that your spirit would lift us up out of our cultural bondage in a sense that was so hard for us to see you got so much noise so much distraction so many doubts so many questions there's so much we're so much like the people of Nazareth honestly it's not this Joseph's son oh, oh, oh but Lord please Holy Spirit put Jesus on display so that we might see him as the powerful omnipotent all-powerful all-wise son of God who's come to do what we need him to desperately do to change history forever and Lord enable us to be a church that believes, that believes, that believes and worships. And we pray this in your name. Amen.